The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Taking a Look Ahead in Non-Cystic Fibrosis Bronchiectasis, Leveraging Early Diagnosis and Emerging Therapies to Improve Quality of Life. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash SND 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Ann O'Donnell from Georgetown University Hospital. Welcome to this educational activity on improving care for patients with non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis. Uh, joining me today in this discussion is Dr. Brett Elliker from the University of California, San Francisco. First, uh, what is non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis? It is uh, an abnormal, usually permanent dilation of the distal bronchi and bronchioles. Associated with that is impaired mucociliary clearance, retention of secretions, recurrent infections, inflammation, and further airway damage. And the CT image here shows uh, the results of that uh, vicious cycle of damage. How does bronchiectasis manifest clinically? Uh, Generally, patients present with cough, sputum production. Sometimes the sputum is mucopurulent or purulent. They often have dyspnea. Uh, They complain of fatigue, and less commonly, but certainly seen, are uh, symptoms such as hemoptysis, uh, pleuritic chest pain, and weight loss. Bronchiectasis is on the rise in the United States. Uh, It's estimated about 340,000 patients in the U.S. have non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis. Greater than 65 years of age accounts for about two-thirds of those patients, and it's unknown why the prevalence is increasing, either a growing awareness or a true rise in case uh, incidents. And as you can see on the slide here, um, the disease is more common in women than in men and more common as uh, the population ages. There are multiple etiologies for uh, non-CF bronchiectasis. Probably about a third of patients, we actually don't determine a specific etiology, and we characterize those patients as idiopathic. They tend to have more lower lobe bronchiectasis, generally a good prognosis, and commonly uh, seen in uh, females more than males. There are several hereditary reasons why people might get bronchiectasis, as well as immune abnormalities. Um, bronchiectasis can also occur in the aftermath of infection, or it can be focal due to obstruction of the airway. What symptoms are most challenging for patients with bronchiectasis? This is data from the Embark project in Europe that has a large cohort of patients with the disease. This is a results of 711 questionnaires from adult patients with bronchiectasis and uh, those who care for the patients. It represents uh, patients from 22 European countries, Um, They answered a four-point scale about their symptoms, the lowest uh, score being not an issue and the highest very difficult. And in this survey of these patients, sputum production was identified as the top problem that they complained of. So now we'll hear from a patient who will give us some insight into her earliest symptoms, her diagnosis, and her biggest challenges in having bronchiectasis. My earliest lung-related symptoms were frequent upper respiratory infections. Uh, Often they uh, started in my sinuses, the headaches, and then 
as it, instead of getting better, they would progress down to my chest, lungs, and eventually begin to be uh, symptoms of pneumonia or what I guess they called walking pneumonia. I was never hospitalized, but I would have to take medications for the multiple pneumonias and have x-rays. Uh, but it was never mentioned that I had any problems in my lungs other than pneumonia. And um, it wasn't until one bad, bad winter that I had another exacerbation of, of chest infection that I was told that I had a um, scarring in my lungs that might be tuberculosis. And I was given a uh, tuberculin skin test, which was negative. And then they told me I needed to go to a pulmonologist at home to find out what I had. And I tried some local pulmonologists with very little success. Um, and one mentioned in passing that there was a person at National Jewish Hospital in Denver who might know what was wrong with me. And this was in 2009. So between the x-ray and traveling out to Denver to get a diagnosis, uh, it, was, it was a few months. Not terribly long, but within a year, I suppose. Within 2010, they had, uh, Dr. Dr. Daly had diagnosed me as uh, mycobacteria abscessus, chelone, uh, pseudomonas, and bronchiectasis. I like to do yoga, or I did like to do yoga, but when I get in some, sometimes the positional changes, especially the lying down, if you've ever done yoga during a shravasana, there's a resting period. And if I were to lie down on the floor in a group of people, I would be coughing and hacking and spitting in about five minutes. And I would have to get up and leave the room. So I started doing yoga at home. And the same thing would be true if people go to church or if you go to concerts or if you go to any kind of uh, situation where it's going to be quiet, you can never tell when you're going to want to cough up this mess and uh, sometimes it's more prevalent than other times. And sometimes you really want to get it up. I've had to pull over to the side of the road and stop the car, open the door and spit. I know it's gross, but uh, you know, I'd rather not die. So I do it. And it has hampered me in the grocery store with COVID. If I'm going up and down an aisle in a grocery store and I get a coughing fit, like the place clears out. They all think that I have COVID and that, you know, they're going to catch it if they're in the same aisle. And I guess that's something I need to, to stress somewhere is that patients need to know that this is not contagious. Uh, my children were afraid to let me see my grandchildren. They thought I was typhoid Mary and that, you know, I'm carrying this horrible ab disease called abscessus and, and people are afraid of you. So socially, when COVID came, it was very good for me because I stayed isolated and uh, I still do to a large extent because I don't want to get, I've had vaccinations, I've had uh, boosters, I've had COVID twice actually and survived to tell about it, but I don't want to get it again. And uh, I have kind of taken extra precautions with masking and reducing my social events. So the bronchiectasis is, is a threat hanging over my head which, uh, especially with, with coronaviruses out there, um, I'm more susceptible than most people. And I am truly, I would have to say, my life has been 
changed by having this. Although it is such an invisible disease that I, I don't get any sympathy from anybody <laughs> except when I cough. I also have really not very much energy, fatigue. Fatigue is a huge problem and I think it's got something to do with the oxygenation. I'm sure it does and, and the heart-lung connection makes it very difficult to... Um, I get breathless, I get short of breath. I told the doctor recently that I get tired making the bed. <laughs> I walk around the bed in the morning and by the time I walk around the bed to change the sheets, I'm exhausted. And that's not the way I used to be. And it could be age, because I am 77, so part of it's age, but part of it is breathlessness and shortness of breath. So as you've heard from the patient, bronchiectasis has a significant impact on day-to-day -day life for the patient and for those who care for the patients. So some of the challenges and unmet needs in this disease include, first, the lack of recognition. Second, as I've already mentioned, the increased prevalence. Third, the absence of standardized definitions and diagnoses. It's very common that the disease, that the bronchiectasis is misdiagnosed uh, and ascribed to other uh, pulmonary diseases, such as COPD or asthma, and the diagnosis is often delayed. There is also, in the U.S., a lack of a standardized referral path, and that sometimes results in underdiagnosis and undertreatment. There's also issues of communication between the primary and specialty care, those taking care of these patients. Additionally, there's a lack of FDA-approved therapies, and there is clearly suboptimal treatment for patients with bronchiectasis who are infected with pseudomonas. First of all, you have to monitor for pseudomonas, um, particularly in patients that have frequent exacerbations, and there is a need for evidence-based interventions that reduce exacerbation frequency. How do we make the diagnosis of bronchiectasis? First of all, the, you have to have the suspicion that the disease may be present. So in a patient who has a chronic cough, particularly if they produce sputum, that should raise your index of suspicion for the disease. And then following this pathway, which was outlined um, by colleagues, um, is a good guideline for um, evaluating and diagnosing the disease. The gold standard, if you will, for confirming the presence of bronchiectasis is the high-resolution CT scan. Some of the other uh, tests that are needed in these patients include sputum cultures, pulmonary function testing, particularly spirometry. Chest radiograph has a limited uh, use in bronchiectasis, and occasionally patients with bronchiectasis need to go, undergo a bronchoscopy, but this is mainly if there is focal disease or um, there's difficulty obtaining expectorated secretions for culturing. Now I'm gonna turn over the presentation to Dr. Elliker, who's gonna present the imaging findings associated with bronchiectasis. No, thank you. Um, and it's a pleasure to be here to talk about this important topic that we uh, see um, pretty routinely in daily practice. Maybe not the most common thing that we see, but it is an important entity, a group of entities to discuss. And, of course, as discussed previously, chest X-ray really is uh, very insensitive for bronchiectasis. This is a patient with a very severe childhood viral infection, and then 50 years later, they developed, they eventually developed severe bronchiectasis. But we really don't usually detect bronchiectasis on chest X-ray until it's quite advanced. 
So, of course, CT is really the gold standard for anatomic assessment of the airways. And I want to first mention that here are two different patients. And the difference between these two is one disease predominantly involves the large airways and another disease predominantly involves the small airways. And we're really going to focus on the large airways findings today. And while many diseases that involve the airways can involve both the large and the small, most predominate in one or the other. So your differential diagnosis is going to be quite different depending upon if it's mainly the large airways involved or mainly the small airways involved. Bronchiexis technically is when you have irreversible airway dilation, although I think radiologists tend to just describe it when you see airway dilation, whether it's irreversible or not. There's several um, definitions on imaging of what we consider bronchiectasis. We probably depend as radiologists mainly upon an enlarged bronchoarterial ratio. The other findings are uh, suffer from not as good inter-observer agreement. And also when distal airways are involved, that's more of a small airways disease. And I'll show you several examples of these in just a minute. And these uh, findings of bronchiectasis are often associated with areas of airways inflammation as well due to chronic lung inflammation, chronic mucus impaction, um, mucociliary clearance problems. And those will include airway thickening, airway plugging, and then the more distal airways impaction findings of central upper nodules or tree and bud opacities. Uh, here, depicting the findings of airway enlargement and bronchiectasis, this is an example of um, an airway that is not tapering. You can see at least two to three centimeters past that um, early bifurcation that the airway remains the same in size. And you can imagine this can be really difficult to see when the airway is being cut in cross-section on axial images. As I said, we predominantly focus as we're imaging uh, experts on the bronchoarterial ratio, the ratio of the internal lumen of the airway compared to the adjacent diameter of the artery that runs with the airway together. And that bronchoarterial ratio is considered abnormal when it is, well, people use different thresholds. Classically, it's above one, although there are a couple studies that show that patients who are older and patients who live at altitude, uh, even when they are normal, have bronchoarterial ratios between one and 1.5. So 1.5 is a threshold that's much more specific. Between 1 and 1.5, I look for other findings of airways disease, such as airway thickening, mucus impaction, findings of airways inflammation. Here's an example of airways that are dilated all the way out to the very periphery of the lung. This is another sign of bronchiexis, although, as I said before, this predominantly reflects the small airways being dilated, so bronchiolectasis. Uh, and mainly, we focus on imaging on the enlarged or elevated bronchoarterial ratio. There are two types of bronchiexis. One is inflammatory. This is mainly what we're talking about today. The airways are dilated and also inflamed. The other type of bronchiexis is traction bronchiexis, which is what we won't talk about today, which is different entities that cause lung fibrosis. And the airways are dilated because of the adjacent lung fibrosis. These airways often appear irregular, corkscrew-shaped, but they will lack any inflammation in their internal lumen. So you don't want to have mucus impaction, airway inflammation. In terms of inflammatory bronchiexis, we generally describe three types, cylindrical, varicose, and cystic. The importance of these three types is, as you go from cylindrical to varicose to cystic, the severity and the chronicity of the airway's inflammation 
significantly increases. So, and also the differential diagnosis becomes much more narrow. Cylindrical bronchiectasis, very nonspecific. You can see it with acute viral infections. You can see it with a, a whole slew of different diseases. The differential diagnosis is extremely broad. As you go from cylindrical to varicose to cystic, the differential diagnosis becomes much more focused. And I think in terms of this discussion, we're really going to be focused on the varicose and cystic forms of bronchiectasis in terms of the etiologies we're talking about. So what are those etiologies? We're not going to be talking about cystic fibrosis, but I think it's important to depict it uh, in its context of its comparison with the diseases that we're going to be talking about. Classic cystic fibrosis will be bronchiectasis of varying severity, but often varicose and cystic, predominating in the upper lobes bilaterally. This is a nice coronal image of a CT showing that. In contrast, probably one of the, the most common alternative entities to cause bronchiectasis besides cystic fibrosis is non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection. This has a very characteristic immigrant appearance. It tends to be right middle lobe and lingular predominant. And in this case, you can actually see that the right middle lobe is completely collapsed from the chronic airways disease, a common sequela of chronic bronchiectasis and airways inflammation. You tend to have lots of enlargement of the airways, inflammation in the airways, but you have very little disease actually extending outside the airways. You can have nodules that may cavitate and they may grow outside the airways, but typically the findings of airways inflammation are isolated and predominate. Another way that bronchiectasis may present is in the lower lobes, in contrast to cystic fibrosis, which is an upper lobe disease. And this is symmetric lower lobe predominant cystic bronchiectasis, and this patient has long-standing constrictor bronchiolitis. Other entities you would think about in the distribution are immunodeficiencies, primary ciliary dyskinesia. Recurrent aspiration can certainly give you some degree of bronchiectasis, but I find it almost never uh, it be becomes this severe. And then another important entity is to know is this, this area of central bronchiectasis. Here we see two central airways that are quite dilated. There's very little distal disease. Uh, and you can see on the soft tissue images that this mucus in the airway is high attenuation. So this is a pretty classic appearance of allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. And the key really is central bronchiectasis, a lack of peripheral disease, high attenuation mucus. When these patients get treated, the mucus impaction often improves significantly, but you're often left with um, residual bronchiectasis. And then lastly, and perhaps most rarely, is the cartilage disorders such as Williams-Campbell and tracheobronchomegaly. These are very interesting in that they tend to give you pretty significant bronchiectasis, but they have a distinct lack of inflammation of the lumen. So you have a paucity of airways inflammation and airway impaction like you see in this case. My last slide is to sort of increase awareness of constrictor bronchiolitis as a cause of bronchiectasis. This is a histologic pattern where you get fibrosis around distal airways. That fibrosis early presents with hy regional hypoxia with reflex vasoconstriction. So early on, the main findings are mosaic perfusion or mosaic attenuation. But over many years, usually 10 or more years, eventually the large airways start, start to dilate, probably because of the high pressures it takes to ventilate. So over many years, you start to get bronchiectasis, and that may be very quite severe. So I actually think that this accounts for a reasonable percentage of those cases of idiopathic um, bronchiectasis. There's a wide variety of causes, post-viral, um, connective tissue disease, um, toxic inhalations, uh, graft-versus-host disease, chronic rejection and lung transplant. 
This tends to be, these findings are tend to be reversible, although if you catch it early, sometimes azithromycin therapy may be helpful. And with that, I'll turn it back over. Great slides, great talk, I like that. Thanks. So here's a, a image of uh, airway with bronchiectasis. You can see on that top panel that the airway, uh, a normal airway shows smooth, smooth mucosa and um, normal caliber to the airway, whereas a bronchiectatic airway is often plugged with mucus that commonly is purulent or mucopurulent, which results in damage to the cartilage and to the muscle of the airway and enlargement of that airway and with the vicious cycle of mucus retention. So the, the so-called vicious cycle of uh, bronchiectasis was first proposed by Cole et al. and, and um, has gained uh, credence over the years. There's initially thought to be some insult to the lung and to the airway that sets up the process of bronchiectasis. That insult, uh, whether it's anatomic, inhalation, infection, starts the process that results in mucus um, retention, uh, plugging of mucus with resultant impaired mucociliary clearance and innate and adaptive immune deficits right at the level of the airway. You get microbiologic colonization there and then chronic infection uh, which results in more damage to the airways. So the thought here is that there's a cyclical process um, that once the insult is initiated, um, all of these things continue to circle uh, with resultant more bronchiectasis and more damage to the lungs. So let's take a closer look at the pathophysiology of bronchiectasis with this short video clip. During the normal process of normal respiration, air travels through the nose, down the trachea, and into smaller airways called bronchi. The bronchi are going to divide into smaller bronchioles, and then they further lead to tiny balloons, right? They're balloon-like clusters that we call alveoli. In the alveoli, oxygen is exchanged for carbon dioxide in the blood. Bronchiectasis results from the destruction and widening of the bronchi due to recurrent inflammation or infection, which incites an immune response that includes the release of neutrophils, lymphocytes, and macrophages within the bronchial lumen. This results in the airways becoming abnormally enlarged. They get damaged. This inflammatory damage then stimulates the formation of excess thick mucus in the enlarged airways. The thick mucus then crushes the cilia that line the airways and causes further damage. This affects the lung's ability to rid the airways of dust and pathogen and quantities of sputum that subsequently form cannot be efficiently cleared. This leads to a recurrent cycle of infection and inflammation promoting progressive airway damage. Dipeptidyl peptidase, or DPP1, is a lysosomal cysteine protease responsible for activation of neutrophil serine proteases, or NSPs, in the bone marrow during the neutrophil maturation cycle. NSPs are increased in the sputum of patients with bronchiectasis. Brenzocatib is an oral small molecule under investigation for the treatment of bronchiectasis that acts to inhibit DPP1 and interrupt the neutrophilic inflammatory processes in the lung, thereby reducing the number of exacerbations caused by bronchiectasis. 
So now turning to treatment, um, there is certainly rationale for novel agents that target, target inflammation in bronchiectasis. We do have therapies that are uh, primarily aimed at the infectious process, but the thinking is that we ought to start with where the process evolves from in the vicious cycle, and that is to address airway inflammation with the idea that breaking the cycle of inflammation will result in improvement in uh, the lung itself, prevent lung damage, and reduce the infections in patients with bronchiectasis. So a, a newer uh, class of agents called DPP-1 inhibitors, which target neutrophil serine proteases, may block inflammation and break this vicious cycle. This is based on some preliminary phase two data and a phase three study is currently underway and just completed enrollment. So this slide shows the results of the phase two Willow trial looking at brensocotib, uh, two different doses versus placebo. The endpoint here was uh, the proportion of patients with no exacerbations. And you can see that the blue line, which is the 10 milligram dose, as well as the 25 milligram dose, did show a significant improvement in the, this particular endpoint of proportion of patients with no exacerbations. So the percentage of patients in this Willow trial with no one or more exacerbations is presented here. And again, the placebo is the orange bar, the 10 milligram dose is the dark blue bar, and the 25 milligram dose is the lighter blue bar. And you can see here that most of the patients in the trial, including in the placebo arm, had zero exacerbations. But um, overall, there was a reduction with both uh, strengths of the brensocative uh, and a reduction in number of exacerbations over the time of the trial. This uh, slide represents the sputum neutrophil elastase concentrations, which is the target of this drug. Again, from the phase two Willow trial, you can see uh, the placebo line, there was almost no reduction in the concentration of neutrophil elastase. The 10 milligram had a substantial reduction and the, the most uh, improvement was seen with the 25 milligram dose of brensocotib. From this Willow trial, we can see the safety data and uh, any adverse event, uh, there was no significant difference in the three arms. The, again, the placebo, the 10 milligram or the 25 milligram arm. And overall, um, looking at all the acute exacerbations, including bronchiectasis exacerbations, um, no significant difference was seen in, in the three groups. So moving on now to just mention other uh, emerging therapies which are on the horizon for which there's clinical trials. You can see the list here. All of these trials are definitely in early phase. Um, only one listed here is completed. The rest are still recruiting. So what's the appropriate treatment uh, based on disease severity in patients with bronchiectasis? The important take-home item from this slide is that older patient with a lower BMI, a lower FEV1, and frequent exacerbations are really um, the characteristics of the most severe disease. 
So having one exacerbation is a strong predictor of, of future outcomes. So as you can see here um, in this uh, slide, three or more exacerbations really predicted hospitalizations during follow-up. And uh, in addition, the, the presence of three or more exacerbations was a negative in terms of patient survival over the five-year period of this clinical trial. So the current standard of care in, in bronchiectasis, step one would be viewed as first off to treat an underlying correctable cause uh, to start airway clearance and potentially pulmonary rehabilitation or at least some sort of exercise program, to do standard things like annual influenza vaccination, to start prompt antibiotic treatment for exacerbations, and importantly, to educate the patient and have the patient uh, in conjunction with their clinician develop a self-management plan. Step two, um, which really is if the patient is having three or more exacerbations per year, is to consider more active treatments, uh, physiotherapy, which may include devices, pharmacologic agents that are mucoactive, and um, other therapies to help with mucus mobilization. Step three of care is, again, with three or more exacerbations, the clinicians may consider starting the patient on targeted antibiotic, antibiotic therapy. If there's chronic pseudomonas infection, long-term inhaled anti-pseudomonal antibiotic, or for some patients, uh, long-term macrolide therapy may be an option. If there's other potentially pathogenic organisms, uh, long-term macrolide, again, is, is something that can be considered, or some other um, targeted long-term uh, maintenance antibiotic. And if there's no particular pathogen, but the patient is having uh, frequent exacerbations, again, a macrolide is a consideration. Macrolides in these patients really are more anti-inflammatory than anti-infectious. And the big caveat with macrolide therapy and bronchiectasis is that it should not be used as monotherapy if the patient is also infected with non-tuberculous mycobacterium. Step four, again, if you're not succeeding with the previous three steps is to uh, up uh, the, the antibiotic strategy. And finally, patients that are really frequent exacerbators and have advanced disease sometimes need regular bursts of IV antibiotic targeted at their organisms. Now, let's go back to our patient and hear about some of her experiences with her healthcare providers and her treatment. I took a sputum sample into a new pulmonologist that I was going to be a patient, and I handed him my sputum sample, and the pulmonologist said, he took it like this and he dropped it in the trash can. He said, I don't do spit. And I, I fired him. I mean, I was like, okay, if you don't do spit, I can't be your patient. And he said, you need to see an infectious disease specialist. So I, I again, pulmonologist, please, don't do that to people because we need you. Um, do spit. Look at sputum. You can tell the difference in quality and color and viscosity and a lot of information in addition to putting it through your machines and analyzers and finding out what medication it's susceptible to. I said to the 
to the doctor up there, what's bronchiectasis? And he showed me, he got out the CAT scan and he pulled it up and he showed me the dilation of, of the airways and the uh, relative size compared to the blood vessels and, and how to judge whether or not it was uh, bronchiectasis. And so spending time with your patient you know, explain bronchiectasis. What's, I thought it was bronchitis. I thought it was the same thing as bronchitis. I didn't know what it was. Um, it's just a word, but it means something different than bronchitis. Basically, I'm on nothing now. I'm taking nothing. I've had this been diagnosed since 2009, and I'm down to where I'm just letting my own body heal it with exercise and good nutrition and positive attitude. Keep busy. Don't panic. Do the least you can with medications. Don't, don't go to doctors and want pills and drugs and all that because I don't think there's the magic cure out there for this. But if you sleep well and eat well and exercise and have a positive attitude and keep yourself busy with other things so you're not always thinking that you have a terrible disease and it's going to kill you. One of the most helpful things that uh, my doctors have told me, of course, in the very beginning when I heard the word abscessus and bronchi bronchiectasis, I thought, Am I going to die from these? And all the doctors have said, you are going to die with it, but not from it. And that somehow was comforting to me. I was like, okay, I'll die with it, but not from it. And I imagine what I would die from would be if I did get COVID or pneumonia, that would probably be it. But um, the second point is that when they told me it wasn't contagious, I felt so much better about that, that I could be coffee, coughing and, you know, not worry about giving it to anybody else. So hearing from the patient, it's clear that there are unmet needs when it comes to treating patients with bronchiectasis. It's also so important that we take the time with our patient and educate them as much as possible about the disease and about the treatment modalities. So in summary, bronchiectasis is characterized by a vicious cycle of infection, inflammation, and injury that often results in progressive symptoms, loss of lung function, reduced activities of daily living, and changes in quality of life for patients. The diagnosis is often missed or delayed. The high-resolution chest CT is the gold standard for diagnosing a bronchiectasis. And we now have treatment recommendations as well as novel agents that target the underlying inflammation of bronchiectasis that may offer new means of treatment. Uh, the only thing I would say is, um, as, was, as Brent already mentioned, right, is not to equate the nodular bronchiectasis with NTM, right? It could be due to other organisms. But I, I thought what you did about like the traction bronchiectasis versus the other kind is, is great. That's a great. Uh -huh. Great point. I mean, uh, we have a we actually have a bronchiectasis conference where we have a lot of these discussions, and I think what I, one thing I've come away from that conference is how there's a lot of overlap of all different things that contribute to this. I think particularly in NTM. I mean, as I'm sure as you know, like that aspiration is a big contributor to NTM and chest wall abnormalities. I also think that um, we've seen a lot of cases of bronchiectasis where you have NTM where there's um, probably pre-existing bronchiectasis obliterans, constrictor bronchiolitis. So it's interesting how it's all kind of uh, 
there's a lot that contributes to this and goes into this. And I think, you know, as, as you said earlier, very, very nicely that the uh, treatment really has to be based on a lot of different things. I think it's a multifactorial way to treat things, but it's, that's, those are some insights I've gotten from our conference about, about this and the discussion back and forth between radiology and the clinical side of things. And we gain a lot of insights from each other, but I think particularly in NTM, we see a lot of overlap of like aspiration and constrictor bronchiolitis and NTM, and they all coexist in various degrees and one leads to the other in that kind of stuff. So anyway. Yeah, I thought, you know, your slides are fantastic. I thought to point out all those things, that was great. So thank you for joining our presentation today. And thanks to Dr. Elliker for his elegant presentation on the imaging findings in, in this disease. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash SND860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from INSMED.